Oh my goodness, nothing in common. I'm tall. <laughs> oh man, seriously. <laughs> At least not a chicken joke. Oh, he's got more hair. Okay, more hair. All right, praise God. Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Quinton. It's uh, it's such a joy actually to be working with Quinton. Uh, we started in the youth kids and youth ministry together, maybe over a decade. Um, also. I'm very glad that he is leading the push for working with Children's Check and Child Safety for the White House Community Fair. Because actually, all the ministries of FGA, everybody who serves at FGA needs to get their working with Children Check done. And so, but it's just been a nightmare for us trying to chase that up. So now, we've got the fair coming up, and it's the great reason um, to get all of us in and working with children check compliant. Um, uh, having children safe as part of our community is the responsibility of our church. It's the responsibility of us as followers of Christ. And I'm actually going to, just before I get started with the sermon, um, you may or may not know, but I listen to a wide range of different podcasts, speakers. I, I read a range of books. Um, not all of them agree theologically, you know, with, with us. But um, yesterday, the Southern Baptist Theological College, led by the ninth president, uh, Albert Mola Jr., put up a post, which I thought was, oh my goodness, so cool. Because today is Family Sunday. We've got all the kids in with us. In his address um, to the seminary, he put up this clip, and I just want us to listen to it. It's a little bit traditional, right? It's a traditional congregation. Um, so the choir is sitting behind. One day we'll have the choir sitting behind me. But please listen to his words as he explains why it's important for us to be a welcoming place for children uh, at church. Okay, video. Always. Wherever children are found, they are to be welcomed by Christ's people. Christ's people are to be more welcoming than anyone else to children. Our churches should not be places where adults cannot wait to put the children away in order to get to the adult tasks of worship. One of the scandals of so much evangelicalism is that we send people to their rooms as soon as we get to church. Now, I'm not arguing against the utility of a nursery for infants. I'm not arguing against the appropriateness of special programs to teach children. I am saying that when you look at a church and you look at a congregation, you should see the congregation. You should see young people. You should see young couples. You should see older couples and older people. And you should see those who are coming into the final season of their life. And you should see those in the beginning season of their life. You should see people sitting in pews whose feet cannot touch the floor. And we should, in church, welcome the wiggling and the squirming. And we should hope that what is happening is that the Word of God is reaching those hearts in ways those children do not even recognize. They are speaking as children. They are thinking as children. They are reasoning as children. But the Word of God can reach where we cannot go. All right. Father, we want to thank you today that your word works in wondrous ways, that you have gifted us with a glimpse into who you are and a reflection for us to see ourselves in light of your view. I pray, Lord God, that as we get into Scripture today, that 
all generations sitting here, all generations, Lord God, will be impacted uh, by your word. Use me as a vessel. May it not be my words, but your own today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Hey, um, we're starting a new series. Uh, it's on the book of Genesis. Um, it's called Only Human, and we're looking at the infirmity of man and the grace of God. Infirmity is just a, a complex word that, that means the sin of man, how we kind of fall short. Uh, you know, it was amazing um, last week how we got real live accounts of stories, real people standing here telling what they did with their life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, oh my goodness, I'm pretty sure what they said was only the tip of the iceberg, was only the summary. They, they didn't, we had meals with them. They didn't have enough time last week to share all of the hardship that they went through and then their, that their wives went through, that their kids went through um, as they um, sacrificed for the kingdom. So I don't want to take their hardship and their difficulty lightly. But, and if you missed it, go back and, and, and watch the sermon, right? But today... We, oh no, you, which you can't. So if you miss it, write down, I should never miss church service and be on time. Okay, oh yeah, too bad you can't. You can catch the line dancing video. That is online. Uh, but today, as serious as that was, like as epic, and I was so touched last week by the kind of sacrifice that took place. Today, as we kick off the book of Genesis, and I know how crazy this might sound, but Genesis and the Bible dwarfs all accounts that we might have for the gospel. Everything that, ha in fact, if you think back to the last 100 articles you read this week or this year, the last 1,000, I want to put it to you that the text that is in the book of Genesis is more epic, is more substantiated, and is weightier than all of that. That is how significant the book we're about to open is. Um, now, because we're diving into the Old Testament, so today is the kind of like a prep, all right? Uh, I'm hoping people will come back and listen to this. It's a bit of a prep to set you up for the whole year. Because we are not doing, most churches and, and certainly us, we've been doing New Testament books. We did Acts last year, we did Romans, we've done Philippians, right? And so I'm keen for us to have a healthy diet of the Bible, which means this year we're doing an Old Testament book. And the book of Genesis is in a slightly different style from the Gospels and from the letters. And so I'm going to try to help you today. Today we're going to spend time um, trying to prepare ourselves to appreciate and learn the book of Genesis. To help you with that, we have got kids' worksheets. How many kids have got the kids' worksheet? We have kids' worksheets, so if you're an older kid and you're able to follow along, I, I think you can pick up a couple of things about the book of Genesis. And then as I was preparing the kids' worksheet, I was thinking, oh, why should all the kids have the homework? Like, I'm sure the adults can do this too. So then I prepped an adult worksheet. So everybody now has something that they can follow along uh, with for today's uh, sermon. So if you don't have one of these uh, pieces of paper, 
here, you can put up your hand and maybe one of our ushers will uh, pass it to you, right? But um, in here, you'll be able to see, um, write down one thing about the book of Genesis that you learned today. It must be something that you did not know before. So I'm going to cover a bunch of things. You can take separate notes, but just write down something. Then we're going to talk about three ways that we can respond to biblical narrative, okay? And so these are blanks that you need to fill in. And I, I think it's, it's aimed at a level that even the kids can follow. So surely you can handle it. All right. You know, our one line, our one line from today, because biblical narrative is a little bit different from the letters of Paul. Letters of Paul are very simple. Do not commit sexual immorality. Do, right? Um, letters of Paul are really pretty straightforward. Let me tell you about sin. Let me tell you about the redemption of Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross. Da, 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 right? Today, we're going to figure out. I think our orientation needs to be when we open up the book of Genesis, and it's mostly stories, it's narrative, right? We're going to ask, what would a wise person learn from this ancient, supernaturally inspired, world-changing, significant, epic book that we're about to open up? All right? That's the question. Okay. So the first thing you need to understand is that the Bible is old, and accurate. The Bible is old and accurate. You know, like sometimes we get confused, right? Because I don't know about you, I just saw the Black Panther, and then, and then last year, you know, like you've got Beauty and the Beast, which is like such an epic retelling. And, and so sometimes you get the idea that because there's so many versions of the Bible out there, that maybe what we're looking at is, you know, just a modern day retelling of a Marvel comic that you read when you were a kid, Right? But I tell you, the Bible is not in this made-up category, and neither is it continually changing and changed to suit whatever is hip and cool right now. In fact, um, I don't know if you know this, but the, the English Bible that you have, and I would recommend that you open up a Bible. You can look at an app. You can go online, ESV Bible, uh, you know, um, and get that even online. Or if you have a physical Bible, you know, take a look at it. Uh, while there are a lot of different English versions, they're all sourced from the same Greek and Hebrew text. All right? So the Bible is broken into two. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is predominantly written in Greek, and the Old Testament is predominantly written in Hebrew. There are... There are... Um, extant or ancient copies of the text, written, ancient copies of the text in its original language that are present in real life today. Tens of that, 25,000 extant copies of the New Testament alone, all right? You know, the New Testament has so much support. I was doing some research, and the New Testament has so much support that there was one historian, historian, that says, no other book is even a close second. So you're looking at, in terms of ancient 
copies of the original text. The second most only has handfuls. So most ancient texts only have handfuls of these copies. Whereas the New Testament has thousands, thousands in our possession. There's lots that we could say. But as spectacular as the New Testament is, the Old Testament is even more amazing. Because you've got to understand, the New Testament's newer, right? Written in a time uh, where the Greeks had, had universal language so that different countries could all speak that kind of language, right? They, uh, in fact, a lot of English has now um, been adapted from, from Greek origins, right? Greek to Latin to, through to, to English. So while the New Testament itself is an amazing work of history, the Old Testament, the fact that we have the Old Testament in Hebrew, that blows my mind. In fact, um, I don't know if you realize how many generations of people have sacrificed their life, spent their entire life, communities have spent their entire life preserving the text of the Old Testament so that when you open it up today, it is a faithful representation of what was written thousands and thousands of years ago. They did this. They held in such awe, in such sacredness, the text that we are about to be reading today. I, I don't know if you realize this, that it's not the same as your Facebook wall or even the movie, the last movie that you saw. It's not in that same category because people have not spent generations and generations of copying and preserving this. In fact, you can hear God's voice ring throughout humanity, especially in the book of Genesis because it's been there shaping us as people. I mean, is this the oldest thing that has ever been written? Maybe not. Maybe this is not the oldest piece of document that's ever been written. You know, it's not the cave picture of a bison on a wall of a cave or whatever it is. But you know what? It is one of the oldest things that has ever been written that has come true. A good test of whether, a good test of prophecy a good test of whether something is divine, a good test of whether something is worth its weight in gold is whether it comes true, whether it reflects any truth at all of the world that we're in or says anything that is actually true. Because there have been a lot of things written today, written recently, written in the past, written in ancient times that's utterly ridiculous and you read it today, has no relevance at all to how we live our lives. Yet, even contained in Genesis as prophecies of Jesus Christ coming, even contained in the Old Testament, in fact, Jesus says the whole Old Testament points towards Him, and then He goes off systematically fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that's contained in these holy scriptures to a very specific to a very specific level, so much so that his lineage is linked. The way he dies is linked. The evidence of his death is linked 
It's the oldest book that does that. You know, the Hebrew language itself is amazing. I, I don't know if you know that the Hebrew language is a dead language. All right? And its people got scattered, got wiped out and scattered. Usually what happens then is the language just doesn't get spoken anymore. And what happened when Israel came back together? Do you know what they did? They took the Hebrew language, the ancient Hebrew language, and made it their national language. So now, it's quite ridiculous, actually. Now, there are contemporary Jews that grow up playing PUBG or whatever it is, right? And they can understand. They can go to a scroll, literally, they can go to a scroll like this and read those words. I did some research because, you know, like, I'm thinking even a lot of us can't read Mandarin. But maybe if you could read Mandarin and you're a bit of a Mandarin, so maybe you could pull up ancient Mandarin text and you'll be like, oh my goodness, I can read that. You can't! Just Google old Chinese. I tried to... You can't, because they haven't even figured out less than 40% of what some of those ancient Chinese words mean. Yet, the exact text, the exact letters of the exact words are preserved for today's current person to read. In fact, they read it so much, the Torah, it's memorized. They, the, the young kids, they may not even... Like, not only do they know how to read it, they know how to recite it in exactly the same way. Why was this? It, is it too hard for us to think, how would God, who wanted to preserve His Word across thousands of years, how would He get it to us here? You know what He did? He picked a family, Abraham. He started a household of faith, which we're going to go through today, uh, which we're going to go through this year, right? Half of Genesis, more than half of Genesis is that the formation of that family. That family that then is tasked to preserve Scripture. That family that then led to Jesus Christ. Now that family became a nation and then became a people who devoted themselves to copying and relaying these texts. And then they preserved their culture they organized their life around it. And even though they got split all around the world, they still came back to it. That is how epic Genesis is. That's how epic the Bible is. When you open up Scripture today, please don't confuse it with some of the other words that you are going to see this week that show up on TV, that show up in your textbooks. Oh my goodness, they're constantly revising science textbooks even. It sits on a category of its own. But here's the thing. If I were to ask you to write down the stories that you heard last week, because, you know, we didn't record it, right? Even, okay, maybe you secretly recorded it, right? If I were to ask you to write down the stories that you heard last week, and maybe you had a recording, you write it down really carefully, and then get you to you to copy it, pass it to your kids, and then get your kids to copy it. And then maybe for some weird reason, if you decided to do this for a thousand plus years, 
maybe, maybe you might succeed. Maybe. Because now you've got so many copies of it and everybody's just copying from each other, right? So you're like, okay, we got it. We know exactly the story that was told last week. Wouldn't it be scary if you've been going now for thousands of years and halfway as you're going for thousands of years, someone discovers a version 1,000 years before. That means like somewhere halfway between when you first started writing the thing down and now, right? Halfway along the line, somebody discovers a copy. Oh my goodness. I hope nobody sees that copy because they're about to open up that copy and discover, has it been faithfully recorded across. I tell you, other religions have been so nervous about it. Islam, they adopt a different strategy from Christians, right? So all old copies of the Quran are burnt, right? So you can only, the oldest copy of the Quran is the official one that has been endorsed, and anything that has been found before that, they're like, oh my goodness, they're not really the right one, and they're just burnt, right? And so they have they are, they are one version that doesn't change. Christians have gone the other way. We've like, we don't have the original Genesis. We don't have the original, we don't have the original Bible, right? So we're constantly finding ancient copies of it. But if we find an older, ancient, more ancient one, we're going to revise it, right? And this, this could be potentially really dangerous. Because what if the old ancient one could, is like, wacky. It's way out there. It's coming. And so this is what happened when the Dead Sea Scrolls got discovered. All right? So when the Dead Sea Scrolls got discovered, I mean, I, I'm just trying to get you to understand the, the weightiness and how epic it is that we even get Genesis as it is. All right? So in 19... So it was discovered in 1947, right? In 1945. How many people are alive in 1945? Oh, perfect. In 1945, the oldest existing copy of the Old Testament, the oldest, was dated, was dated 950 A.D. after Jesus Christ. Okay, that was the oldest physical copy you could get of the Old Testament. Then, when some teenagers, teenagers, were throwing rocks around, they threw a rock into a cave, it broke a clay pot, and it kicked off a discovery of the Qumran scrolls, and they discovered many other caves in that area after that. And so then, archaeologists, they're still studying it today. Then archaeologists come in, the world kind of pays attention, right? It's big business now hundreds of millions of dollars are invested into the whole thing, right? And everybody's checking it out. And it turns out that these are then dated 150 BC. So now we've suddenly picked up a copy, a version of our Bible that's 1,000 years predating whatever our closest version was. Talk about being nervous. Yet you'll find the entire book of Isaiah contained in there, twice. 
you'll find fragments. So a lot of it, damn it, okay, you know, it's not carefully preserved in like, you know, these vacuum sealed uh, electronic things that we have now, right? But so a lot of it destroyed by age or whatever, right? We have fragments of Genesis in two different caves even. And when you compare that, the accuracy is phenomenal. It's more than 95% accurate. And the majority of the, the under 5% that's different are, are what would be called textual differences. That means as soon as you see different copies of it, you can figure out why copy number four was a little bit off because it's missing one letter. It was copied a little bit off, right? Because we do, we're only picking one sample from 150 BC, one sample out of many, many other locations that would have had these things stored in. So great was that backup plan. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, they might have better uptime than some of the servers we have today. You know, like it has kept this text going and going. So Genesis... What do we know about the book of Genesis? Genesis, it's, you know, some people say, if I were to ask you what's the first book of the Bible, you would say, oh, it's Genesis, right? In, in Hebrew, Hebrew, I love Hebrew. Hebrew is a little bit like Asians, right? Okay, Asians are a little bit like Hebrew. I don't know, right? They, they're very functional. The Hebrew name for the book of Genesis is Bereshit, right? It's just the first word of the book of Genesis. It has no title. Bereshit is the first word right? Um, it means in the beginning. That's what your Bible starts with, in the beginning God, right? Um, but Genesis is actually not the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible is the first scroll of the Bible, and the first scroll that almost all very serious, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the Hebrew temples, no, where did where the Jewish synagogue? Every serious synagogue owns in uh, in the synagogue a scroll that has one scroll, really long one scroll that has the Tanakh. All right, the Tanakh is comprised so there are no vowels in in ancient Hebrew, right? So the Tanakh is T N K, T N K. Right? The Tanakh is their Old Testament, which is exactly the same as our Old Testament. We went through a season where we added a bunch of stuff, and then the Reformation came, and we removed the stuff we added, so now we're exactly the same. The Tanakh is comprised of the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. All right? The Torah is the first book of the Bible. The Torah is that first scroll. Okay? And it couldn't fit a lot of stuff, so... It's into these five books for us. All right? So Torah just means law or instruction. Instruction. It's a good, I, I like instruction. All right? And it contains Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A good way of thinking of the book of Genesis. It's important for us to understand this about Genesis because sometimes people get the book of Genesis to do things to explain things it was not written to do. While, I, now pay attention really carefully, the stuff of Genesis is true. 
and is compatible with real-life science. But it's not written as a science textbook, okay? It's not written to help you understand molecules, atoms, whatever. It's not, it's not what it's there for. It's there to give you instruction for life, all right? It's there as part of the Torah, all right? And then, in fact, if you put the Torah into perspective, so Genesis starts with creation and Adam and Eve. It ends with who? Joseph, all right? It ends with Joseph. So at the end of Genesis, all's going well. All's going well. Even though they've been exiled, Genesis is actually explains how the Jews got to Egypt. Then you get the Exodus. And so by the time you get to Deuteronomy, the next one after this is Joshua. Right? And so the Torah, a good way of thinking of the Torah is the story of how God fulfills His promises. The story of how God has led and preserved His people. All right? It also, because these patterns repeat again and again, also becomes the story of us. It becomes the story of us in our needing of God's redemption, in our needing of a Savior, and in our understanding of God who keeps His promises. And so it's repeated again and again and again. All right? So that's why it's so exciting. Genesis is story-like history. That's my plain English way of saying biblical narrative, okay? It's history, but it's kind of like stories. Stories, stories, stories. What is really unique about biblical narrative is it's very powerful. That means kids can remember it. Hey, kids, how many people have heard Noah's Ark? Noah's Ark. Yes? Oh, my goodness. Noah's Ark. Great. How many of you can recite... 2 Timothy 3.16. I don't know, because stories stick in our mind and in our imagination. They have a way for us to communicate through the different generations and to pass on eternal truths. They are powerful, okay? The next thing you need to understand about this story-like history is that it is true and accurate. For its context. And here is where things get really tricky. Because you're going to read, especially on the internet, you know, and various other, right? Oh, uh, let me prove to you why the Bible is wrong. And, and then they'll, they'll like apply a lot of today's methodologies, today's systems to text that was written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago that they couldn't possibly, they didn't, the way people communicated, the way they told stories, the way they lived wouldn't have reflected that. So if you were to ask me how old am I and I was to tell you I'm 44 years old, I would be telling you the truth. But I would also not be accurate. In today's conventions, most people would just go to the nearest year, especially if I'm 44, this year. I'm actually, oh my goodness, I had to Google it. I'm actually 43 years, one month, and 26 days old. And I don't know how many minutes and how many seconds, right? But that's a lot of detail. 
That's a lot of detail. So when Genesis says, hey, there was 144,000 or whatever people here, or all the people of the nation were gathered, and then you can prove that there were two people in the toilet, and they weren't there. The, oh my goodness. What you're trying to say is, almost everybody was there, gathered while Joshua was talking. What you're trying to say is, the way they counted... Right? They counted by men. They didn't count, they didn't count women. They didn't, right? The way they counted, they didn't have an iPhone that, you know. It was true and accurate. It, does it detract at all from the truth statements that are being made? You know, like um, in, in my book, one of the first stories I tell is, uh, that I'm kind of writing right now um, is how Uncle Roland led me to Christ. Right? Oh my goodness, that's a story that has been told a hundred times. And then I was like probably six years old, right? So I'm trying to recall the story and I'm writing all kinds of stuff. I'm certain it's definitely not as accurate as the Bible, right? And like it's getting more exciting every time I'm retelling it, right? Um, but I'm gonna accurately, I'm gonna accurately retell that story. I am, because Uncle Roland's going to corroborate it. We're going to ask my mom who was there, and then we're going to, right? But is it, when you add all of our memory, while it's going to be true that Pastor Roland met me, and I was a little bit of a brat, right? And then he, he led me to the Lord, and then uh, as, as a consequence of that, our whole family accepted the Lord, right? While those parts are true, I mean, even though you can pinpoint, like, gaps here and there that we can't remember, the entire story, I kid you not, actually happened. I know it happened. I'm a result of that. Uncle Roland, like, these things actually happened. And so when you look at Genesis, one of the things you have to understand about the book of Genesis is we're talking about story-like history of things that actually happened, written by people who don't have access to Google and computers with, like, full-on, spot-on accuracy down to the millisecond. Okay? That will help you understand. You also have to understand that they're writing in their days and times, okay? Where actually, when you hate somebody, you don't just unfriend them on Facebook and dislike them. You kill them. <laughs> like, real kill them. <laughs> like, that's because that's how they did it back then, pre-Facebook, right? Okay. Also, Biblical narrative, you have to understand that the way the Hebrews, the writers write is they write what happened. So it's not what should happen. You shouldn't read Genesis as like, oh, this is what I must do. Have affairs and then go and kill people. And You must read this with a wise lens. So it just tells you what happened. You also, context and setting is important, especially for Hebrew, especially for the Old Testament. Hebrew is a context-sensitive language. Greek is a low-context language, much like English, like the Americans in the Western world. They are used to people moving around. The Greeks were used to people traveling and moving around and stuff. So the low context. So you have to exactly say what you mean. Love is kind. It's patient. These are things. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I have to explicitly tell you what it is. Whereas Hebrew is a little bit like Asians. We're not going to tell you clearly anything, right? And one example a professor uses is like um, when you're a kid. If you're an Asian kid, you're growing up, and you have guests over for dinner, and your mom puts out the nice chocolate. And in front of you, you're a kid, in front of you and all of the guests, oh, help yourself to as much as you want. 
all the kids know, we're not touching that chocolate. <laughs> and then she'll, you'll hear your mom, your parents say, it's okay, everybody, just help yourself. Come on, eat, eat, eat. But you're hearing, eat it and you die. Eat it and you die. <laughs> I'm telling you, right? Because it's, it's high context. And, and the Old Testament's like that. It's high context. You, you, you're supposed to understand when you read this and then they get a curse afterwards. And then You're supposed to understand that God's not happy with this, but you'll never see the words, and God was not happy with this. You, you're supposed to get the context. And I love stories for that because they immerse you in there. So because biblical narrative is tricky, it requires reflection. And that's where I'm going to land as we end today. Because there are three responses that you can have as we kick off this series, as we kick off this year, and we go into the book of Genesis. All right? These three responses are, one, in fact, I'm so glad Patrick sang a song with the words mocker and scoffer in it. Ah! You can take the response of what the Bible calls a scoffer or a mocker. Um, that means you say, ah, I know better. There is nothing that this book can teach me because I've read on Google something else and it's much better than what the Bible says. In fact, Proverbs 21, 24 says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, the haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. And so you're going to go through as we do Genesis this year and judge the book of Genesis. Like you are the qualified judge of it. Right? And we have seen so many mock the Word of God, yet it comes true. Yet its promises stay true. Yet it has stood the test of time. And so I want to encourage you not to take the, 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 the lens as you read some of these stories and go, oh, how silly of them, how crazy it is that you don't take this prideful stance. In fact, um, it says of scoffers, don't reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. You're going to see as we do Genesis, it's going to confront the way you live life. And then a scoffer goes, uh-uh, this book is not going to tell me how to live, how to act with my girlfriend, how to run my home, how to do my business, how to live my life. This book is not going to say any of those things. And you will hate the book. You will hate the words of Scripture because it's going to try to reprove you and you will not grow to love it. All right? Next is the fool. The fool is somebody who hears the same thing again and again and again. They're not attacking. It's not like the mocker. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's really, wow, what you say sounds really good. Maybe you sit at church and you go, oh, Pastor Chris, what a, what a, oh my goodness, hands down, the best sermon ever. I'm just going to live my life exactly the same, but that was really good, man. Really good. That's a fool. Just saying. That's a fool. Okay, a fool um, is somebody who, in their own eyes, is, is right. In their, so they hear everything that goes on. Nothing kind of changes. In fact, um, uh, I mean, a, a kind of a bad example of this, right, is uh, Proverbs 26, 11, which talks about a fool. It's like a dog that returns to his vomit. Uh, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. In fact, 
um, I wrote this down, and then uh, as I, I listened to a whole bunch of different sermons, actually, uh, Bill Hybels at Willow, uh, old church in Chicago, just preached a sermon last week on this, but he was doing a financial sermon. And he said he is so heartbroken because he sees so many in America anyway make financial mistake again and again and again. And the, that trap of debt and instant things that they want to spend their money on right now keeps getting there. And even though they see the pain of it, and even though they teach about it, they repeat it again. And I tell you, that is, and he has a pet dog that goes back to its vomit, right? So he has a dog that eats fish from, that have fallen out of the river, and then it throws up, and, right? And goes, oh my goodness, there's that fish again. I get two meals. And then <laughs> eats, the, eats that fish again, right? Like, let's not be like that. This whole series, Only Human, we're looking at the infirmity of man. That means we're going to take a close look at why, at some level, we're a little bit more flawed than we'd like to think we are. Right? As we do that, if you take a lens of a fool, you're basically going to end up saying, hey, these are really insightful things that this ancient, godly-inspired book is telling me, but I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. All right? That's the full lens. The wise, which I want to encourage you. How do you read biblical narrative? How? You adopt the lens of a wise person. So you go, what would a wise person learn from this story? Now, a wise person, if you... So firstly, 2 Timothy 3.16, which I referenced earlier on, says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. All Scripture. That means... That covers the Torah, the Netavim, the Ketavim, uh, right? It covers all the Old Testament and the New Testament. It covers all of that, all Scripture. Actually, with all Scripture, you can take a lens and go, what does a wise man learn? And you can grow from it. I will even go as far as to say, even if you're not a Christian, even if you have your doubts about the divinity of Scripture, you can learn something from a text that has been passed down from millennia to millennia and still stood the test of time. That has very intelligent, wise people, kings of nations that have read these types of books. So I'm pretty sure you can learn something from it if you take a lens of wisdom. I'm pretty sure you can. But, but for us, we know it's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, in righteousness. So a wise man, if you give instruction to a wise man, he just becomes wiser still. That means as we do this series on Genesis, we're going to be birthing a generation. Kids are doing this in Sunday school. We're going to be birthing a generation that if you can receive this well, you're going to be wiser this year than you were last year. Don't we all want that? Right? Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning awesome. That is how you analyze, you dwell on, you meditate on the stuff that's in the Old Testament. You need to put a lens on it. You need to understand its context. You need some time for reflection. You need, it's not just going to tell you the answer. Oh my goodness, it's a little bit tricky. But you can do it if you have the lens of a wise person. 
Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffer harm. And what I want to try to encourage us is this year, let's not do it alone. All right? Maybe get a group of people and read through the book of Genesis together. Maybe in your home group, your home group is doing Genesis, right? Like form a group of wise that are going to sort of reflect on Genesis together. In fact, if you download our app, you may or may not know, we've been doing this for three years now, but on our app, we do weekly devotionals that have been written by our pastoral team, by some of our leaders, right? And it will help you. We're going through, if you do the app every week, you'll get through the book of Genesis by the end of this year. Great. Wise people just get wiser. So in closing, next week, we've got Scott Harrower. He's coming. So this is the intro to the Only Human series. Next week, I hope you come along. Scott is going to talk about the fall. The Only Human series looks at how despite all of man's greatness and achievements, we still find ourselves limited by things that just reflect our humanity. We're only human after all. There are some things that we can't do. And we're going to culminate, we're going to finish this series at Easter with a sermon called Only God. And we're going to look at some of the things that only God can do. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word that has been passed down to us. God, thank you that it has been carefully preserved and that you have raised up men and women of the past to have pass this on to us. And I pray, Lord God, that we would open the Bible with new respect this year, that we would open your scripture and, and, and keep it in awe, and that we would not be scoffers or fools, but that we would look at this and grow wiser still. Help us as we journey through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Uh, we've got uh, food sales after this. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Yeah, Vietnamese food. <laughs>